For October 7th, 2013, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 275. Boo-hoo, cry me a river, you're an astronaut. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. We have jettisoned Matt Rather into the vacuum of space. <laughs> he has fallen. He was, I could have just reached him. If I just got my finger out a little bit more, I could have caught his glove. But no, Rather has soared off to go break uh, the pedantic spacewalking record of, uh, of Anatoly Karapolov or what have you. Uh, and I will be hosting Pete Fenzel. Very excited to be bringing you 2013 Gravity Cast. The film Gravity, starring Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, about the emptiness of space and the humanity that fills it. I'm really excited. We got an elite squad today of panelists. So, but we got to start with a very serious question, which is really about the human cost of this movie. One of the things that the media really hasn't picked up on is just the really hugely detrimental effect this movie is going to have on our nation's youth. If you Google Gravity right now, you're pretty much just going to find stuff about the movie. You're going to find reviews. You're going to find uh, Metacritic scores. You're going to find box office information. There is an entire generation of third, fourth graders, fifth graders, sixth graders right now who are incapable of learning the concept of gravity because the movie Gravity has abolished it from the internet, which is the only way that they know how to read things. So, panel, your question of the week for today is pick a – Something you learn in school, some concept that you learn in a class in school, and you get to replace all of the mentions of that concept in Google, all the hits, all the search results. Uh, if you use Bing or AltaVista, you know, knock yourself out, you know, Rebel Yell and all that nonsense. Uh, replace them all with a movie. What concept do you replace, and what movie do you replace it with? A movie that you would invent. A new movie, a movie that has never been seen. Our first panelist in alphabetical order, drink, because it's, it's not me, it's Mark Lee. How are you doing, Mark? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. I'm back on my feet uh, after having you know, been flung into the far reaches of space and thrown back down on, into it by the movie Gravity. Yeah. So I'm really excited to talk about it. It was, it was, it was quite a fine film. Um, we were so, glad to catch your tether, Mark. Getting that tether and rolling you back in was the best thing that happened after <laughs> after losing Rather, of course. I mean, oh, never mind. Oh, okay, love yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, space owns him now. Um, yes. <laughs> okay, so my, one of my favorite things to talk about, uh, we all learn about in school, uh, is the Civil War. I'm, of course, referring to the American Civil War, the war between the states, the war of northern aggression, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think it's really important that everybody uh, has a really solid understanding of it. I think actually some of this crazy stuff we're seeing with the government shutdown right now, um, the, the motivations behind uh, the, the Tea Party that, that has caused that can be traced back to the Civil War. All these things are really important. Just go check it out if you don't know anything about it. But um, in, in my scenario where nobody knows nothing about the Civil War because it's been replaced by a movie uh, is going to be the movie Civil War, which is going to be a massive – uh, rock-inspired uh, war movie uh, starring all the members of Guns N' Roses <laughs> <laughs> who, who, who lead uh, various factions of the, uh, of, of the rock kingdom against each other in a brutal, bloody civil war. Um, not just, you know, uh, Slash and, uh, and Axel. I'm talking about you know, Duff and Izzy. As well, right? Everybody's going to get in on the action. Everybody's going to lead a faction. Uh, I'm, I'm really thinking like high fantasy science fiction, kind of a mixture of 
uh, Dune and the Chronicles of Riddick <laughs> and uh, the, the heavy metal, the animated cartoon, the one with a lot of boobs. Yeah. This are is there, what I have in mind. <laughs> Wait, are any of the members of Guns N' Roses dead? Or are they all alive? No, they are all still alive. The original members, as far as I Dodged know. Dodged a bullet on that one. Okay, yeah. so there's no zombie army. There's no like army of the undead led by John Paul Jones or anything like that. That would. I mean, uh, I'm sure they can find like some guy who used to be in a guy who used to be in a band with who used to be in a band with the guy who was in Guns N' Roses who was dead now. So that guy can have his zombie faction. Okay. That's awesome. Is, is there going to be the Siege of the Paradise City? Is that one of the turning Yes! Yeah. <laughs> See, this movie writes itself! Y'all are in the jungle, baby! Y'all are yeah. going to die! <laughs> more, more accurately, you know, Guns N' Roses wrote the movie yeah, <laughs> in, in album form over the past 30-odd years. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The operative is named Mr. Brownstone, and you're going to rendezvous with him with increasing frequency and decreasing satisfaction over time. <laughs> General Slash, I have no division. So on that note, let's pass it over to Jordan Stokes. How are you doing, Jordan? I'm doing well. So I've been thinking very carefully about this. It's a thing from school that we're going to replace all of the Google hits. All right. So the thing from school I'm going to choose is that one time in middle school when I spilled milk in the cafeteria and it landed on my pants and it looked like I had peed myself. And when people Google that from now on, instead of seeing that embarrassing freaking image, they're going to see the major Hollywood movie based on that same. Oh, I made a terrible mistake. (laughs) So wait, 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 wait. So in the movie about you peeing yourself, who plays you? Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, ooh, he can do anything. He's just so yeah. transformative, definitely. Who, who plays the milk that gets spilt on you? Oh, that's a tough one. Probably, honestly, probably you got to throw Shia LaBeouf in it so that you can get it produced. So, <laughs> oh, how about this? The studio comes to you as one of the – you get an executive producer credit on it because it's about your life and that's the rules, right? And the studio comes to you and insists that Selena Gomez needs to be in the movie. What role does Selena Gomez play in this movie about you peeing on yourself? <laughs> this is, as, as seconds go by, I wish more and more that I had not chosen this movie to <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I still have Getaway rattling around in my head as something that had to happen. So it's it, that movie sort of peed itself too, so it all came. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I kind of like to think that uh <laughs> That, that like the producers, the director, everyone else involved made some kind of Faustian bargain where they were like, you know, we just have to make this movie and then some horrible wrong will be erased and then it just ends up being worse. Ah, well, there you go. Well, you know, we cannot heal history. We can, we can merely relive it, right, and revisit right, right. it. Uh, the, wounds, the wounds fade with time, but the pee stains are eternal. <laughs> um, so, all right, okay. So I, I decided uh, that I, my, my concept is Washington crossing the Delaware. And I wanted to decide what that was going to be because first I thought it would just be about uh, Denzel Washington trying to get to Philadelphia uh, like in his car. But I feel like he's done that in a lot of movies already. And I was sort of thinking like, OK, well, there's a vibe there, right? Like Washington is a very common surname for African-Americans in the United States. And so uh, how about Washington? Let's make him – let's make it a basketball movie because those are movies that have lots of African-Americans in them. So why, And the Delaware are an Indian tribe, right? Like the Delaware Indians – 
Native Americans, rather, as it were. Uh, so really, it would be about a basketball player who travels back in time and has to play against the Delaware Indians, and he crosses them over. Like, he has this crossover move that they can't stop. And it's, it's about, uh, about whether he's going to teach uh, this crossover move to the Delaware Indians. And by doing so, changes history, and they dominate. And the, the ABA ends up uh, beating the NBA for primacy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's basically an ABA propaganda film for, and we're going to try to get Dr. J on board with it. Try to go back in the day. Uh, yeah, it's going to start. Um, it's going to start. Uh, uh, like what? Like um, I'm trying to think of the names of the characters from Streetball, like the Professor, and like there's various uh, Harlem Globetrotters will be playing like John Rolfe and John Smith and other characters from the era. Uh, all right. Fair <laughs> that was one of the stranger opening questions we've done in a long time, I, I think. Oh, I, I approve, like, I approve. <laughs> well, Cats Away might as well play. Also, I yeah. feel like there aren't a lot of us. So, like, one of our, our – I will share that one of our other questions of the week that we were potentially going to do today was which other fundamental force of the universe do you want to make a movie about since gravity is one of the fundamental forces of the universe. But Stokes, you'd already – you'd already picked one, right? Yeah, yeah. I was going to do Electro Week. Right, exactly. And then, like, well, I'll do strong nuclear force, right? And, like, but that's – so there you go. But that, that runs out of answers even faster. When you only have three panelists, you can ask complicated questions that don't have a lot of obvious answers. When you have more panelists, you have to ask questions where there are more possible answers. We're pulling back the curtain. We're showing you guys how the sausage is made. Um, speaking about making sausages, <laughs> did anybody eat dinner before going to the movies <laughs> to see gravity? <laughs> Oh, these 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 are flawless transitions, flawless. So so okay, so here we are. We're on a three hander, just to give bring you guys listening up to speed. Three hander podcast, which means one of us has had his hands chopped off and the other one has lost one. No, there's three of us on the podcast, and two of us have seen the movie, but Jordan has not. But Jordan is very wise in this in the uh, in the ways of the passionless cosmos, uh, and and will be able to interlocute for us as we uh, endeavor upon a dialogue to explain and understand the movie Gravity. I figured that because I'd seen Open Water, I could probably hang. You know. <laughs> It's actually a, actually a lie because I haven't seen Open Water. Oh, so. man. Because oh, I talked about Open Water. Oh, so, okay, Open Water is a great place to start with this movie because Open Water is, of course, the movie that has uh, – was it? I want to make sure I get the actors in it right because I don't think they were all – they were both famous. Blanchard Ryan and Daniel Travis as – and it's just like they're going to get eaten by sharks, the movie, right? Like <laughs> it's like why do you want to watch this? Why? And, and that was – so the, the previews for Gravity ran for for months before this movie came out. I feel like it was a preview before every movie that I saw this summer. I mean, that's not literally true, but it's pretty close to true. And every time I saw this movie's preview, I wanted to watch the movie less. It just it filled me with anxiety, right? It's because I don't want to watch They're Going to Be Eaten by Sharks, the movie, right? Like, I don't want to see, like, oh, it's, it's dread followed by death. This is, like, I didn't want to see Life of Pi because I had spent the whole time walking to the theater thinking that the kid was going to get eaten by the tiger and I didn't want to watch it, right? And it's like, there's only one way, one way this movie's going to end, and it's with kid death. Because um, <laughs> a, a tiger was going to eat the kid in that situation. But anyway, um, so yeah, an open water movie about the shark circling. Uh, I did think at the end of this movie when Sandra Bullock lands in the water that there were going to be sharks. Oh, <laughs> spoiler alert, by the uh, way, for oh, the movie. Spoilers for the movie Gravity. If you haven't seen the movie Gravity, see the movie Gravity. Come back and listen to us then. If you don't want to see the movie Gravity, uh, and, and maybe some of our excitement about it will, will pay off. It's not 
really – I mean, I guess it's kind of plot-driven, I guess. It's not really a hugely story-driven movie. Uh, I'm sure you would still in, in, enjoy it or not enjoy it to a similar degree, whether you know what happens or not. Although knowing that Sandra Bullock is not eaten by sharks at the end of the space movie is probably a bit of a spoiler. I don't know, Mark, what did you think about like leading up to this movie, your sort of feelings about it and whether they were yeah. – whether it came out in the final calculus? I'm mostly with you with that sense of anxiety and dread um, yeah. because like the this is really one of the – movies with one of the most with the scariest trailers ever done that's that's really not a straight up horror movie right um with the express particularly the sound of uh sandra bullock breathing in her uh, breathing heavily in her spacesuit while she's spinning off into nothingness right that's a <laughs> right doesn't that just like you feel like Man. your chest compressing and, and like your entire body shutting down and, and, and freezing up in fear yeah, um, yeah. And Which is what you want to have happen right before you watch Iron Man three is just like right. <laughs> terrorized by terror. Anyway, yes. No, go on. So going into it just by seeing that, um, sure, you could reasonably think that this is the sort of movie like Open Water, right? Where I, I assume in Open Water these people actually get eaten by sharks at the end. Um, where like this is like such an impossible situation that how could she possibly get out of it, right? Um, but the movie. Uh, Gets past this pretty quickly uh, after all the sort of crazy, cr- crazy things start happening with the space debris and everything blowing apart. Um, movie clues you in pretty quickly that this isn't going to be that kind of movie. Um, partly because just it presents options for escape, actual viable options, long shots with real options for escape there. But just also because of the tone that they established at the beginning with George Clooney and his all of his wisecracking and his love of life. Yeah. Right, <laughs> <laughs> the joie de vivre, indeed, <laughs> which he's loving because he just got the biggest opening weekend of his of his illustrious career with this movie. Really, so he has every reason to be happy. That's what I heard. It's the biggest opening weekend for either of them, and I guess and maybe in a starring role or whatever. But yeah, it, it is this crushed huh. it. Huge record know. opening for an October movie, uh, beating Paranormal Activity two, I think, or whatever. So you know, and, swinging and in the big much- leash. They're pretty much like split the box office, right? There's there's two actors yeah. <laughs> from from the trailer at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, definitely, definitely. When I was watching the the run up to it, it's sort of like either this is going to be the horrible story of someone dying in space because you can't get away from it, or it's going to be the like these mildly contrived story of somebody making a, a breathtaking escape back to Earth. Um, and part of the reason why I didn't see it is because like from the trailer, I kind of thought they were just going to leave her up there to die yeah. and uh as as it got closer i was kind of like eh, this is sandra bullock and george clooney i bet she makes it and now <laughs> i do i, I do actually kind of want to go see it but uh but still it's you know there's not that many places they could go with it right uh i mean that's okay so this is a really important question about the movie and to a degree you're dead on and i and i think quaron that's how you pronounce his last name is it quaron the sure. director let's go with that yeah, uh, uh, he, 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 I think he figured this out. And the movie clocks in at a brisk 90 minutes, right? So it's yep. not a long movie. In fact, Mark thought he was going to be late for this podcast recording because he assumed it was a two-and-a-half-hour movie based on the relative <laughs> importance of its trailer and expensiveness of its no, ticket. No, it's less of the assumption of the, of the gravitas of the movie and more just my failure of math. Okay, fair enough. Well, we did we did replace math with a Ryan Reynolds movie in Google, so you're all right. Off on that one. Um, but yeah, but it's a brisk ninety minutes, and there were really only a few big things that happened. Um, basically, basically, it's a, it's a it's a progress where she escapes. She manages to sort of leapfrog from one 
floating space object to another floating space object such that she can like almost run out of air like a bunch of times right like so she goes from being in a space suit uh to being inside of a space station to being in like an sort of an escape pod and has to go to like another space station and then she she, has to get into another escape pod and she also has beside from the oxygen uh, limitations she also has an hour and a half to find you know of safety basically until uh, the space debris orbits the entire Earth and comes back around and starts wreaking havoc again. Yeah, exactly. Which happens uh, twice. There, there's <laughs> two times where the uh, – because the, the whole movie is based around an event that would make for a whole bunch of other movies that would happen on the surface of the Earth, wherein the Russians destroy one of their own spy satellites with a missile uh, for some reason. And by, for doing, by doing that, set off a chain reaction of space debris and satellites that are breaking up in the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, this shuts down communications with NASA and it – creates this cloud of debris that you know that basically hits this destroys the space shuttle right they, there's a space shuttle in this movie it's sort of nostalgic george clooney is like an old astronaut there's a lot of nostalgia for the american space program the the old uh, russian space program is, is very nostalgically represented in the movie as kind of like old aging things uh and then yeah and every hour and a half this cloud of debris is going to come back and it's going to really mess with sandra bullock's isht uh and she has to make sure that i mean she 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 has to hypothetically she has to make sure that she's not in space when this happens but this never is the case like she yeah. isn't when it happens. Uh, so I have, I have two comments on the story as you've explained it to me. Yeah. First of all, this like, you know, she, she needs to get from place to place so she can refill her air mechanic is telling me that basically this is the water level from every Super Nintendo game ever, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say that, like the damn level from Ninja Turtles, the, the, the NES game, I think. Yeah, that, was, that was just straight up difficult. But yeah, no, it's like, it's like Mario, you know, where she goes in the water and the little pie start shrinking and she has to get up to the water and then the second thing is that like the other movie that you make is george clooney's daughter down on earth is having comical romantic misadventures because everybody's cell phone service is all out of whack right (laughs) well it's funny you should mention daughters because they're also a big part of this movie so so um because the movie also revolves around uh and i guess we have to get to this sooner or later sandra bullock is a mother of a a girl who died when she was four in a playground accident. And so, so the actual kind of, you know, the movie isn't really about space. It isn't really about the vacuum of space. It's really about this woman coming to terms with the loss of her daughter and trying to find meaning in her life, a purpose to keep living uh, after the death of a child. And, and although, I mean, it's, it's not really, really about that. Like, it's really about making the space movie, right? That's really what it's about. But that's the sort of core emotional character-driven part of the movie is like uh, Sandra Bullock trying to sort of deal with this whole situation with her dead daughter. Um, and is it worth it for her to survive? Like that sort of stuff. Uh, which is also a lot like every Super Nintendo game that you've ever known. <laughs> sure. <laughs> basically, basically. Yeah. Um, and so in the movie... It, it, I'm sorry, Sandra Bullock, but your daughter is in none of the castles. <laughs> oh. oh, no. So, oh, boy. The Mario Kart level would be so depressing. It'd just be like... Right. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, I, I say Mario Kart, but like Sandra Bullock's character... And we should we can stop summarizing soon because we'll have explained the whole movie, but because it's really not that complicated. Uh, but Sandra Bullock's character has this really important speech to uh, George Clooney's character before George Clooney's character is killed off, like very early in the movie, right? Like where she talks about how when she found out that her daughter. 
died at school, she was driving her car uh, back to get her. And so she just sort of kept driving. And as, as a result of this traumatic experience, she continues to try to relive this and, and this traumatic experience and re-experiencing it. Every day she leaves work, she just drives her car just long distances through Illinois for no reason other than just to like approach something like mourning, right? And so – the way that the movie works, the driving of the car through the darkness of the Illinois evening uh, is mirrored, which is not shown, it's just described, is mirrored against like Sandra Bullock driving the lone space capsule right through the darkness of the, of, of the exosphere, or the edge of the atmosphere or whatever, outside the edge of the atmosphere. Um, and, and the idea that she's going to just drive and there, there's no other thing that she's interested in doing with, with her life other than doing her job and then just driving. Um, and, and then, of course, this raises the stakes, right? It's, it's a lot like, um, uh, like zombie movies where the zombies really sort of represent your kind of hopelessness in your institutionalized life, right? Where it's like, oh, corporate workers are zombies. People who go to mall are zombies. In this case, like people who drive spaceships through the inky blackness of, of space with no hope of rescue um, are like – People who, you know, they're people who've suffered loss, who are traumatized, who are trying to, uh, trying to heal. <laughs> it's like, boo hoo, cry me a river. You're an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> that is the least desk job of all jobs. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. I mean, Mark, what do you think of the general, like, the sort of way that the space story and the motherhood story in this movie are interwoven and mirrored against each other? Um, give me a second to, to think of uh, something actually to, to say about that, but we should maybe, uh, while I come up with that, let's actually talk about this very specific imagery of motherhood mm. and, uh, and, and pregnancy, I guess, uh, yeah. that are present in this movie, right? You have the obvious umbilical cords, which I think they're actually oh. called that in the space program, right? Yeah, yeah It's like exactly. the tether that, uh, that you know, sends the air to you while you're in your, in your space suit and it's connected back to the capsule, right? It both, both prevents you from hurling out into space and provides you air to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also another scene where uh, Sandra Bullock, like when she, uh, when she makes it to the International Space Station, right? When she's in this just uh, frantic, desperate uh, scramble to get into the thing as she's completely out of air, right? She gets in, she, she makes it into the, into the thing. She breathes in, she, she takes off all of her crappy space suit and she's just sort of uh, floating there and she naturally resumes the fetal position, Mm-hmm. Right and sort of like and and her body is silhouetted by the circular outline of the airlock mm-hmm. as well, right? Yep, so yep, yep. all that is to say that um, these ideas of motherhood and nurturing are are certainly present in here, and that's obviously meant to contrast with the hostile atmosphere of space, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's this, there's a sublimity to it, to the the hostility of space, to the emergence of human life, and and it also casts the act of birth in, in a particularly gritty. I, I, gritty is the word I default to when talking about movies these days, but but really just like one of struggle, where a birth is a difficult, painful thing, and being you know being pulled into the earth, you know, or pushed into the earth by your birth is something that exposes you to a great deal of pain, danger, and horror. Right, and, and and the idea, like, think of there's a variety of characters. I want to I want to address both of the scenes that you just uh, tropes that you just brought up, motifs that you just brought up, uh, because I think they're both worth talking about at a bit more length. The umbilical cord scenes. There's a whole bunch of different umbilical cord scenes, right? The, the one of the first ones we see 
you know, is uh, there's like a third guy who's there whose face we never see, who's like sort of playing around with his like umbilical cord, like pushing himself off from the space station and sort of yanking himself in. He's sort of like a happy, the happy baby. Right, and he's hmm. like, I'm really excited to be an astronaut. And then there's, you know, George Clooney doesn't have an umbilical cord. You know, he has a jetpack, right? And uh, and and so he's not really associated with birth anymore. I mean, he listens to country music, and he he isn't attached to anything. So he's basically like got his truck, and he's drifting off into the sunset already. <laughs> he's right? all, he's like, grizzled hmm. in in a strange way, right? Yeah. Exactly. And this well, it's also his last mission before retirement, which is the first clue that you get that he's not going to make it. Um, Right, right. (laughs) um, But yeah, and he's also like makes a big deal about trying to break this legendary space walking record set by a cosmonaut, which he does eventually do, but not. I think you have to stick the landing. Right, for in order for that to count, you're not just allowed to just die in space. Yeah, Guinness Book of World's Records has a very specific list of criteria for this record, which includes surviving. Surviving the spacewalk, exactly. Uh, and then, and then, of course, there's the the other big umbilical cord scene that follows the sort of happy baby umbilical cord scene uh, is when Sandra Bullock was being dragged around by George Clooney's jetpack on this cord, right? And she and you get the sense of the fact that the person who's attached to umbilical cord has no control, yeah. right? The person who's being born has no control about their birth, and just as we don't have control necessarily over when we die, right? Um, this idea that life and nature are these vast things that we are sort of along with on the right for is, is very communicated through this movie. But there's also like a lot of moments where all the umbilical cords are splayed out in the microgravity and they kind of curl and twist, right? Sort of, yeah. I mean, that's one of the ways that they look biological. They look like the umbilical cords in, in the womb. They look like intestines. It's a lot like what the fountain was kind of about where they, they sort of show the pattern in space and it's the same pattern as the pattern in the cell that he's doing, trying to do the cancer research or whatever and all that nonsense. Oh, that crazy movie with the, yeah. what's his face? Was it Hugh Jackman in that? Yeah, it was Hugh Jackman and, and Rachel Weisz. This did not make any sense. but <laughs> Well, this movie makes a lot more sense than that movie, but it's the same idea and it's shown up in movies a lot, which is that like, you know, Galactic celestial systems resemble superficially biological systems, yep. uh, and in some ways that are not superficial, probably because of the aforementioned fundamental forces that we were talking about and fluid dynamics. Um, also, but a little, yeah, uh, little two thousand one there, right? With like the bone, the spaceship. Oh yeah. See, this is an interesting. That's an interesting contrast, Jordan, that you bring up because I was thinking about it. Because two thousand one, it's all dudes, right? Mm-hmm. And even the space baby is a dude in two thousand one. Right, like there's no. <laughs> I don't to actually see the space baby's like little little space penis. Oh, I thought the guy became the space baby. Does he just see the space baby it's, at the it's end? It's heavily implied that he becomes a space baby. Yeah. Okay, I guess he could change gender like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. It's like if there I mean, aren't enough female space babies, the spa- male space babies change gender and become female, so that the on. space baby population can yeah, keep. He, growing. he transcends time and space at the end. I think he can transcend gender as well. He only like, goes beyond Jupiter. That's not that far. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, at any rate, it's important that in this movie, Sandra Bullock is not a man. She is a woman. I read an interview with Quaron where – and I'm going to get lambasted for mispronouncing his name, I'm sure – where he talked about – he's been working on this movie for a long time. And he talked about choosing a female protagonist for this movie very early on because he wanted to remove the, the heroists from the movie. Right, he didn't want this to be a heroic narrative, and he felt like if the hero, if the lead character was a man, then it would it would be una- he would be unable to make it not a heroic narrative, which would then make you a lot less scared for the safety of the person, 
right? You know, like like Buried with Ryan Reynolds, which is another like, – we're going to list a whole bunch of other movies that are not as good as this movie that like represent our fears and anxieties when you see this movie. One of them is Open Water. None of them is The Fountain. Another one is Buried with Ryan Reynolds where he's <laughs> – buried alive right and it's like well you figure ryan reynolds is gonna get out you know like oh man i don't want to watch ryan reynolds asphyxiate in a coffin <laughs> like nobody thought that was what the movie was going to be about you assume ryan reynolds is gonna get out of the coffin because it's of heroism yeah. right and and like and and the way that movies are so irrevocably linked through the bourgeois capitalist system to hear so like in other words like the the strapping leading man with the square jawline and just we've been programmed to see that person think he's going to save the day he's going to make it yeah like yeah. even if he dies it has to be some yeah. sort of worthy sacrifice or <laughs> even if he even if he cuts his arm off this is basically the story about how one gritty you know blue collar guy uh even if he's not at all blue collar gritted his teeth and got it done yeah Although, like 127 yeah. hours yeah yeah, there are there are certainly counterexamples to be found, you know, like um well, if you go into literature you have to build a fire at least. Um but that one kinda like slaps you upside the head when at the end like all of the guy's capability and whatnot doesn't actually get him anywhere. Um so like presumably if Quaron had made the movie where like the guy is a hero and then he dies, even then you would walk through most of the movie being like, All right, you know, Captain Buck Masterson is going to get home to yeah. see his daughter's dance recital. Right, right, right. And there is also something about the assumption that Captain Buck Masterson is going to get the, everything done and is going to survive. Um, I feel like that there's, there's a, a counterpoint to that where his life isn't really worth all that much. Like, we're not really scared for him dying. And if he does die, it's maybe not as sad, right? Like, because he knew, he knew the danger. He's a brave Mm. man. He's willing to face death, you know, and if he's willing to face death, you should too, right? Like, um, and all that nonsense. I mean, one movie that I, I was comparing this movie to a lot, uh, before I saw it. So, so the, so one of the reasons I, one of the ways I talked myself into seeing this movie was I said, well, the core wasn't scary, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I watched the core and cower in terror. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah so the core uh the core uh, um has the has the vaunted uh, honor of being the number one worst uh physics movie ever from the wonderful website uh insultingly stupid movie physics.com it's also it's also one of the most it has one of the most yonic movie posters of all time oh yeah 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 wait uh remind me what does it look like it looks like uh the, the there's a big uh that forms a long cylindrical hole that forms inside of the earth right right, right. the core yeah yeah. Oh, yeah oh wow i'm looking at it now yeah that's amazing yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You, can, you can fill in the rest with your imagination if you know what yeah, i mean yeah. and so yeah and so like <laughs> we're all looking at the poster for the core now and marveling that this was actually oh. put on print uh, <laughs> It's amazing. Um, but yeah, so I mean the core is about Academy Award winner Hillary Swank trying to save the Earth from a bunch of imaginary problems, right, by drilling. It's, it's Armageddon but down, and we've talked about it on the podcast before. We're like – and, and there's the, the scene in this movie where, uh, where George Clooney has to valiantly sacrifice himself to save Sandra Bullock, right? And you knew this scene was probably going to happen as soon as he said that he was on his last mission before retirement. And the, and the idea is um, that – Sandra Bullock has managed to loop a, uh, a 
a rope around her foot, like from the deployment parachute from a broken escape pod, and is being pulled away by momentum from the escape pod she needs to get into so she can get more air. And so she can have some sort of means of traversing the distance between the different space stations. And George Clooney has detailed this plan to her, um, and, and she reaches out to grab him, but his momentum is pulling her away, uh, and the rope is too loose, right? And so George Clooney clips himself off so as to assume some of more of the momentum so that Sandra Bullock uh, is able to use the rope to pull back into the space station. And basically how I described it, the person I saw this movie with is uh, the core is just that scene over and over again until it's over, right? It's just- <laughs> <laughs> Which has compartments that like periodically fall off and individual characters who periodically sacrifice themselves uh, like clockwork as they drill towards the center of the earth. Yeah. It's it's noble sacrifice porn is what it is, right? It's like, if watching the scene one time would be great, what if we have every character in the movie do it to every other character in the movie? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, and I think we're sort of getting to the bottom of what made this movie special. I mean, it's so scary. And yes, the movie itself, I was just writhing in my seat. It was so uncomfortable to watch for a lot of that first 20 minutes. And uh, I mean, once you get past that part, it sort of becomes a little bit more predictable. And by the third or fourth time that she's scraping along the outside of a space pod, you're like, all right, let's move it along. Like, when is something else going to happen? Uh, and that's about when they end the movie. So it has a good pacing in that regard. But but yeah, like the lack, the, the way that it resists a, a cultural pull, it resists the gravity, if you will, hmm. of the heroic cinematic narrative. Right, the sort of commercial consumer heroic uh, cinematic narrative. It escapes that gravitational pull, but not just because the protagonist is a woman, but also because of like the protagonist appearing as a baby. Uh, I guess this is where we can get to the other thing, Mark, you were talking about, which I like to call the bookend booty shorts scenes. Hmm. Right, like there are two important scenes in this movie where Sandra Bullock just like wears the booty shorts. Like, like there's just like she takes off all of her spacesuit clothes and she's wearing like a tank top and these booty shorts. I've been assured by a friend of mine who has a friend who works in NASA that you are not allowed to wear booty shorts in space. And it's no way to <laughs> um, Now, hang on. I have to interrogate that question. Are you not allowed to wear them under your other clothes even? <laughs> I don't think it's acceptable. I don't think you're allowed to wear like sexually suggestive garments of any sort. Uh, although I don't know. I didn't actually get more information from my friend about why this was the case, which is – okay, so sound off in the comments. Why do you think NASA bans booty shorts? Are they just afraid of women's bodies or is it because they're <laughs> impractical as space garments? Um, or is it just that Lululemon is like you know not on the approved vendors list for that? <laughs> <laughs> That's a callback. If you listen to the podcast, you know we love to talk about approved vendors and municipal and government purchasing organizations. Um, anyway, uh, so I mean, these scenes do serve the purpose of hey, and it's like the Arnold getting naked in T three, where it's like uh, hey, look at how in shape and awesome our middle aged actor is, right? Like, and it's kind of sad that Sandra Bullock has to do this. Uh, like, look how awesomely in shape Sandra Bullock is, uh, despite the fact that she's kind of getting on there in years. And of course, she's much younger than Arnold Schwarzenegger, but you know, there's no surprise that there's double standards in Hollywood. But yeah, they, okay, yeah. yeah, it does serve that function. That that's that's part of what's going on there. But I, I, the other thing that's going on is like um, because the spacesuits are so bulky and mm-hmm. and lacking any form at all, right? That that the, the movie sort of needs a, a a counterbalance to that, another visual image of the human body in a much more familiar form, and, and that and that is like the the tight fitting clothes of Sandra Bullock. 
Right, right. Well, you see the human. And it so is, there's an artistic reason for it, well, in addition to a, a you know a commercial apparel reason for it. Yeah. Uh, despite my like snarkiness, you are right. Like there is definitely a sort of look how awesome the human body is. Look how beautiful the human body is. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and and the two scenes are the scene Mark already mentioned, which is the womb scene, where Sandra Bullock finally gets more air after she's run out of air, and she collapses into a fetal position in zero gravity and floats uh, in the fetal position. And then the other one is after the space pod that she's in crashes in um, in the water near in like a sort of swampyish area. She gets out of the space pod and it sinks, and she's getting out of the space pod. She can't swim to the surface in her spacesuit, so she has to undress underwater uh, and so she has a sort of like second birth right um where she she swims up out of the water and there's a really really dramatic scene where she grips the wet beachy sand like the muddy beachy sand and clenches it in her hands and and just like struggles with a great deal of effort to her feet before in the final tableau of the movie standing like hugely triumphant before like the um the, the vast expanse of the lush, green, and beautiful Earth, you know, which is the place where we're supposed to live. Yeah, right. well, actually, uh, Pete, you must not have stuck around for the after credits thing where uh, she then, the camera then pans and reveals the uh, half torso of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you blew it all up! <laughs> the, res- the rescue chopper lands. <laughs> The rescue chopper lands and the people get out, but then it turns out that the people are actually space debris. (laughs) (laughs) They all are hurtling at her all the time. All all they do is hurdle. They hurdle at things. Space (laughs) is anything other than hurdle. Uh, (laughs) Well, and relatively few things other than space debris do hurdle, right? Like it's it's kind of a, a single use verb at this point. Exactly. I mean, I guess there are athletes, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, basically, we've arrived at the version of Gravity written by uh, Nick Cage's brother in adaptation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so, it should okay. be clear that, like, you know, we're we're talking about the, the booty shorts and the and sort of the eye candy that that's going on here. But this is not a problematic movie when it comes to the portrayal of of women and like objectification of of, of females in, in cinema, like. Don't, don't get mad at this movie. Get mad at a lot of other movies before you get mad at it. Well, you could get mad. I mean, the, the question of whether or not to get mad at a movie for objectification shouldn't really be whether you think the movie has done anything wrong. It should be whether you think that you're getting mad at it is going to make things better for someone. Right? Like, it's... it's, it's <laughs> Go on. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Uh, I mean, specifically around the Miley Cyrus stuff, right? Where it's like, oh, yeah. it's like really advantageous to get angry at Miley Cyrus because everybody is talking about Miley Cyrus and if you are angry about Miley Cyrus then everyone is talking about you right like and so you have to be part so if you have an agenda and you want your agenda to be part of the conversation you got to get out there and you got to talk about uh, Miley Cyrus now of course a lot of this has been colored by some of my own personal experience and professional experience why I won't get into where there were perhaps uh, protesters in various environments who would love to connect to various disparate things that maybe weren't connected because it's what drives the narrative Right, it's what drives the narrative, and I, you could say, "Oh, is gravity?" I mean, you could write the article, "Is gravity anti-feminist?" Is the headline, and then you write, "No, it's not." But here are some ways in which hey, it is. We should write that. We get a lot of clicks on that. I know, oh, right? You got, here's thirty. Exactly. Is is I'm, is I'm, <laughs> bad for women? Is the name of the article. <laughs> I have to register a token objection to the notion that all anger is a calculated cost-benefit analysis in search of page views. Oh no no no! I'm not saying that all anger is that. I'm saying it all should be. <laughs> <laughs> you care about outcomes. 
I also don't mean to diminish – by making that reference, I didn't mean to diminish Shana's article, which I think is awesome. Shana's legendary strong female characters article, which is I think doing it right. Um, but no, I was just you – know, I, I talked sometimes – and this was in regards to my own sort of clumsy attempts at feminism on the blog. Like when I was writing about the uh, StarCraft II, I think we talked about how it was like not as like anti-feminist, but it's hard to say whether it's really anti-feminist because we don't know whether it has an outcome on people that's negative. And it's like, is calling StarCraft II anti-feminist going to create a conversation about feminism that's going to have a net positive effect? And therefore – that's going to be a greater positive than any effect that StarCraft II itself would have had on anyone's minds. It's, it gets very – the rabbit hole gets very complicated. We don't have to drill into it now like Hillary Swank delving into the core of the sure. – Dodge <laughs> geodes and diamonds and whatnot. Another um, way that, uh, that that kind of thing can sometimes play out is that sometimes like <laughs> politics – gender politics or any other kind of politics that are regressive are also just kind of boring, you know? And I, I know that, speaking for myself, sometimes a movie that I that I want to talk about as if it was harmful, maybe it's harmful, maybe it isn't. I probably don't have the information there. What I really mean is, like, I found this dull and obnoxious. And the reason, like, the reason that I realized that, speaking really only for myself again, that this was what was going on for me, is that sometimes I would watch movies that are unquestionably horribly sexist but because they're doing it in sort of an interesting and new way i'm willing to give them so much more of a pass and the the conversation then for me becomes not well this is bad and we shouldn't make movies like this but like like look how bad this is i'm almost like excited about it you know yeah yeah, maybe, maybe a way of talking about gravity is that like yes there are these weird things um but it's probably not a movie that would provoke a lot of ire probably more a movie that would provoke a lot of uh sort of interesting conversations because i do think i mean it seems like it's not just an incidental piece of eye candy right like there's something her her being a woman is baked into the movie on a very deep level we have the director on record about that right yeah so And and also, it wasn't marketed ever as a sexy movie. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't I don't think that you can say that it was a, a commercial attempt to get butts and seeds when the entire trailer was about the promise that she might die rather than the promise that she might strip. So, right. so there's something else that's going on, but that doesn't necessarily make it like a good message or a appropriate use of of the butt. <laughs> no, I, you know what? I think, and I think now that you've said this, all this, given I, hearing it back from you, I, I gotta step up and say that I, I, we sort of, I sort of started from this of the perspective of the movie is guilty until proven innocent. I do think the movie is generally pretty aggressively positive in, in the way that it portrays women and the way that it, it tried us to break up cinematic tropes of masculinity and heroism and the way that it tries to glorify and dignify the, you know the struggles of things other than killing your enemy right like <laughs> <laughs> that is a tough sell for hollywood it is it's like how many i mean cuz we've not only are we at the point where it's like you got to kill the bad guy even if the bad guy's a volcano right like you got to kill the bad guy to win but we're at the point where every movie feels like you have to kill the bad guy to save the world right like you have to like there has to be something else that you destroy right uh, and in this movie, there isn't. The, the cha- there really isn't. There isn't even like a surrogate. There isn't even really like a like the machine is malfunctioning and Sandra Bullock has to get it to work to land safely. And by slaying the machine, she wins. Like in two thousand one, they have to kill Hal, right? And that's a very True. sad scene. Yeah. But but he's the bad guy. He's the villain of the yeah. movie, and they have to kill him. And and in this movie, there is not a villain. Right. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the, this is the uh, the classic struggle of man versus horrifying lack of environment. 
Right, right, no, exactly. No, 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 the villains, you guys, the villains are the Russians. They're the ones yeah. who irresponsibly <laughs> shot down their space satellite. That's so true. The, so the sequel to this movie is that Sandra Bullock gets Wait. up from the lake and then, like, arms herself to the teeth with <laughs> weapons and then, like, destroys the Russian space program so this never happens again. Yeah. Oh, no, I was joking that the sequel of the movie was was going to be that uh, that Sandra Bullock gets a call in, like, ten years, right? And it's, like, the U.S. government's like, we need you to go back into space. She's like, no! <laughs> no way I'm going back into space. Space is awful. And they're like, well, wait till you... There's extraterrestrial life. There's radio signals. She's like, I don't care. I'm not going to space. And they're like, look at this picture. And it's a picture of her daughter who's alive with the aliens. So you were going the the Alien 2 sequel where she has to go back, but I was thinking that the sequel is going to be Gravity First Blood Part 2 where she has to fly a helicopter up into space and rescue George Clooney from a POW camp on the moon. (laughs) (laughs) This time America is going to win the space race. Wait, what? (laughs) Just tell me, physics professor. Yeah. Do we get to win this time? Yeah. <laughs> Hell, the second they're all off, thermodynamics says no. But I'm going to say it's up to you, Central <laughs> Houston, um, Houston in the dark. Mission accomplished. Let's, let's, talk, let's talk about that for a little bit, because that was a really cool uh, trope in this movie, really cool motif in this movie, which is that George Clooney informs Sandra Bullock that um, even when you're broke, you, you, if you can't hear communications, so this is like the way that Star Trek misrepresents radio signals, right? Which is that like when the Star Trek Enterprise, the Starship Enterprise wants to talk to an alien ship, they, they establish a channel with the alien ship. And it's, it like- it's called opening a subspace hailing frequency. Get yes, they open a subspace. And these two things, it feels like it's communicated narratively, even if the fake science doesn't work this way. But it's communicated narratively that the two ships are connected almost by like a wire through subspace and they can talk to each other, right? Um, But in this movie, they lose any uh, radio broadcast from Houston, but George Clooney – being the rugged veteran uh, astronaut that he is, you know, keeps broadcasting to Houston, telling them everything that they're doing, so that such that in the odd event that Houston can hear them, uh, then Houston could potentially help them out, right? Like, and so, like, you know, I mean, this doesn't end up happening in the movie, but you could potentially see a scenario in which they are able to inform Houston of their coordinates, and like Houston manages somehow to get a shuttle up to get them. Right, like, I mean, not that that could ever possibly happen, but like, you know, or like they need to land in a particular place, which is really what does happen. They need to land somewhere, um, and then the the government knows where they are, so they can go pick them up, so they don't starve to death in the wilderness after getting out of space, um, right? But uh, but so George Clooney does this, and he always says like Houston in the blind, Houston in the blind, right? Um, and uh, and this is also juxtaposed, and then Sandra Bullock picks it up. Right, like sort of like Walter White picking up the trope of someone he's killed. Uh, Sandra Bullock picks up the trope of uh, of of the way George Clooney talked to Houston. No, that's a Breaking Bad joke, and it happens in season one. So I'm not giving away anything. Anyway, um, so Sandra Bullock is saying Houston in the blind, Houston in the blind, and this is juxtaposed against a really uh, interesting theme of of prayer through the movie. Right, like praying shows up. Sandra Bullock has a big speech about praying. Um, and I don't know if you noticed. Did you notice, Mark, the dashboards of the different space uh, space pods that she moves back and forth through? Um, what what about them? Is there some significance well, that I missed? He, yes, each one of the dashboards of the different pods that she's she goes to is adorned with like an icon or image. Oh, the, you're so right. Yes, 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 absolutely, yes. Right, so she goes into the Russian space. I didn't notice it in any of the American stuff because I wasn't looking for it yet. But when she gets into the Soyuz craft, there's like a little Orthodox Russian Orthodox icon. Yep. Um, and I think it's of. 
is it of like Joseph and Jesus? I, or is it of Mary? I think it's of – I don't remember. No. Jesus. It's like a child. I thought it was a child and a man. It might have been a child and a woman. It, it go, it's like a close-up shot and then it goes away real fast. And then when she gets into the – which is the, the kind of unlikely one is she gets into the Chinese one and there's a Buddha. Yeah, I got a great kick out of that. That was fantastic. <laughs> there's like a little Buddha. And that, that those two scenes are meant to, I guess, connect the experience of prayer – uh, across cultures with something other than the sort of specific deity that is being prayed to, right? And, and I guess – and I think that the idea of you keep calling out to somebody just in case they're answering because they just might save your, your butt, as it were. Well, not uh, just that, but also that like the act of calling out uh, you know, is, is, is helpful in and of itself, right, in, keep, in keeping you going. Yeah, that, I think that's really what it gets down to is that like in the darkness of the hostile world, whereas the opening – scroll tells us life is impossible right isn't that a great line mm-hmm. where they're like there's the temperature goes from a negative 200 on positive 100 or whatever 150 uh there's no air life is impossible in the places where life is impossible there these diff- various different people come to the same conclusion to continue to sort of call out uh for help as a way of either keeping themselves sane or motivating themselves to go forward or it's just some sort of elemental aspect of their existence Right, like um, it's something that they all have in common. Um, yeah. And I thought the movie was pretty good. It was pretty. It was. It was not like Armageddon, where it's like I am a Russian hero, I am a crazy stereotype astronaut. Right, where it's like <laughs> you need to make the different astronauts from the different countries. Like you need to make them different Street Fighter characters, apparently. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, in this case, there are no other astronauts. You just go into their space pods after they've escaped or been killed. Um, but uh, but you sort of they're. You see indications that they might be a lot like you. I mean, that's also drawn up by the fact that it's a really important plot point that the Chinese space station is modeled after the Russian space station, even to the point where the Chinese escape pod is is a like bolt for bolt copy of the Soyuz craft. So Sandra Bullock, even though she can't read Chinese, is able to pilot the Chinese space pod uh, down to Earth because she knows the location of the buttons from her simulator training on the Soyuz craft. Right, like, and so this is about the experience of prayer cutting across cultures, the experience of life and death, and like the you know the the fear of fear of the unknown and all these other things. It's also about the legacy of the Soviet former Soviet bloc and the you know the Chinese either licensing or copying the design from the Soviets because they were cooperating in these different ways back in the time. But you know. Oh yeah, like, I, I mean, it also is interesting time to make this movie because of the end of the space shuttle program. I mean, he was working, you know, Quaron was working on this movie before the space shuttle program was ended, right? Yeah, I mean, let's talk about this because, like, yeah. it's totally unclear in what timeline this movie might fall into, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, there's a reference to when when all the satellites start to go up because of the space debris. I think George Clooney says makes a reference to like people not being able to log into Facebook. Yes, am I recalling this correctly? Yeah. Yeah. So there's this, essentially an alternate current timeline where the United States still has space shuttles flying, and um, do the Chinese have a space station in orbit right now? I don't think they do. I don't think but so. They, do, yeah, they, they've certainly been you know they're planning such a thing, and it's easy yeah. to conceive them having right, having that, right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Even the International Space Station might be built out in a way that like was originally planned when I had a poster of it hanging in my bedroom in 1991, as opposed to what actually panned out due to you know limited budgets over the last uh, ensuing 20, 20 years or so. Right. 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 I mean, the um, I, I think I read this is more stuff from the interview with with Quaron, and we can spool off from that. But it was really important to him in making this movie that it didn't take place in sort of a futuristic sci-fi environment, yep. uh, which I think would probably have a similar effect on it that having 
having it have a dashing square jawed male hero like George Clooney, like be the person not dying, you know, like it, that would have a similar effect of reducing the scope of, of the, I, I, I want to say story that he's trying to tell, but it's not really a story, right? This sort of, this sort of cinematic language that he's trying to express, right? The way that he's trying to encapsulate the human condition and, ex, and sort of formulate the human condition in moving images and sounds, yeah. right? Like, and, and the idea of it being like a super duper space adventure would, would get in a way of this just as much as having it be, uh, it'd be a heroic uh, male figure in, in the lead. Uh, and instead, it's really, it's really trying to take the tools of you know, high action, high adventure, high horror movies that are $100 million movies – and uh, and really and use them to tell a story that is is so human that it's uncomfortable for those tools to tell. And one of the ways that he does this is by you and also all of the collaborators, of course, that worked on the project. And it's not this one man show, but by like putting in familiar symbols that we'll have emotional attachments to, and thus seeing them destroyed will make us sad, right? Like when like they the space when, shuttle, exactly, yeah, yeah, because the space shuttle is in the movie, but the space shuttle is annihilated, right? Like. Um, what does he say? He says, like, explorer's damage is catastrophic yep. is the word that he uses. And, you, and there's a lingering shot where you go through the, the – uh, you're looking in the, at the cockpit of the space shuttle, and the, you realize the windows have been blown out. Right? First you realize that it's dark. Then you realize the windows have been broken. Then you see the frozen corpses. Yep. Right? Like floating through space where it's like – and it's like they, they, there's a wonderful moment um, where a little Marvin the Martian doll – Right? Oh, like like this fantastic. wonderful moment where this little Marvin the Martian doll floats up out of the sort of grave of the space station and just sort of goes past uh, – I think it's George Clooney's head, right, off into space. And there's the question of is he going to grab it, and he doesn't. It just sort of goes. Yeah, that, right? that was an interesting choice of uh, pop culture token, by the way. Um, because yeah. I would think it would have been a little bit too on the nose if, say, like a, a Ripley action figure. <laughs> well, yeah, nobody right. would have known what that was, right? Like, if it were, if it were, I guess, if we're Sigourney Weaver fighting an alien, then maybe. But, even, but in this case, well, it was also a necessary moment of comic relief because Marvin the Martian's look of consternation was like what was like vaguely appropriate to the situation, right? Like, oh dear, like ah, oh, my spaceship's been blown up, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. uh, you know, he, he looks pissed off. The the doll is in a sort of pissed off uh, uh, frame of mind. And, and the idea that Marvin the Martian can survive in space, but we can't, is also implied because Marvin the Martian is a space person. It is also, I mean, Marvin the Martian, I feel like, is a, a symbol of a time when we still sort of thought space was maybe going to be welcoming. Oh, like it, yes. it, it's a very, I mean, not that he's a nice guy, right? But he's, mm-hmm. he's comical. And uh, you sort of imagine there being every planet is inhabited and we're going to, uh, to conquer them and farm coconuts there. And, you know. mm-hmm. <laughs> and then in, instead you have space as where life is impossible. It's a, a stark juxtaposition. Right, right, right. It's like it's like the biggest problem isn't the duck on Planet X, right? The biggest problem is the lack of air on Planet X, which right. we don't really get to, or like the you know thousand degree boiling liquid gas, you know, whatever uh, strange phenomenon that can kill you can be found there. Um, so is is Quaron on record uh, as saying that like nostalgia for the space program is one of the reasons, or an, an admiration for the space program and man space exploration is a reason for making this movie? No, I don't think so. I think I think okay. well, I think he was on record saying that they wanted to make a movie about it was started out as sort of a desert movie, I think, of like people traveling through the desert on some sort of long road trip adventure through like the mountains or deserts. And then they were like, Well what if we did it in space? 
Mm-hmm. Right. What if we did a, what if we did a survival like a, a, you know, a man versus nature movie and we did it in space? And what if we really did it? What if we really showed what it's like to try to survive in space by yourself? And then like, how do we totally disarm people? Right. OK, we don't make it heroic. You know, we don't make it sci fi. You know, and, and I think that it was a happy accident that there's this poetic relationship with the destruction of the Explorer and the end of the space of the shuttle program, not the end of the space program, obviously, but the end of the shuttle program. I think that that's a happy accident in the sort of mm-hmm. poetic language of this movie that it kind of it's it's nice that that happened when the movie was in production because it means more i mean obviously it's not nice that it happened but you know what i mean right uh, right yeah happy accident is a good way to put that I yeah, mean, yeah i know we, we've talked in this podcast before about um the relationship between the real life space program and science fiction and we've also lamented just the, the general decline in manned space travel over the year, so I, we don't want to retread old territory here, but um, just watching this movie, and, particularly in the beginning, and seeing the astronauts and the jetpack and sort of thing made me intensely nostalgic for those heady days, as I mentioned before, around 1991, when I had a poster of the uh, proposed design for the International Space Station uh, on, on my bedroom, right? And this idea that the, that the, the future of, uh, of space exploration really was limitless, and that it was just only a matter of time before we reached um, Star Trek and could use um, you know, subspace channels to hail. Aliens. Right, right, right. As opposed to have to like speak out into the darkness and wonder if anyone's listening to us, which is oh, how we oh. speak to aliens now. Or, or have the, oh, not even that, like have the budget cut for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we can't even. No, do I, that. I, I, also, we, we got well actually pretty well in the last podcast. Talked about that and that, um, like manned space flight and the shuttle program in particular is not really dead, right? Like NASA theoretically has the budget and the plans for building new reusable space vehicles and for sending people up into space and all these other fun things like that. Right, right, it's just right. that in this particular moment now, uh, it doesn't feel like that. Um, and also reminded of like the stupid government shutdown that's happening right now. Like, you know, almost all of NASA is, is on furlough except for like the astronauts that are actually in the international space station right now. They're getting right. paid, thankfully. Right. Well, okay. I mean, I think this is another aspect that we can look at of this movie, which is the journey from the where the movie starts on the space shuttle to where it ends in the mud. Right. Because what? Why is it that people feel sad about the end of the space shuttle? It's not because they know the value of the scientific research that happens on the space shuttle, and it's probably not even really anymore so much because of the sort of thrill of exploring the upper atmosphere, right? I think it's because the space shuttle is an iconic image. It's just mm-hmm. something that you see and recognize and feels like a friend. Right, like it's something that you that you believe in and you hope for, and like you see it take off or land, and it, it, it expresses a lot of your own feelings about things. And it feels like it's on your team. It feels like it's on a good team. Like people like it. It's highly right? aspirational. Yes, exactly. It shows our better nature. It communicates all these things that's not actually doing, but it is doing discursively. Right, it's not yeah. doing them rocket propulsionally. Um, there is a funny moment where George Clooney says, uh, "Just steer it this way. It's not rocket science." <laughs> yeah. It's like, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> But then we go from this place where we have this icon that we're hooked to with umbilical cords, and we have this like space literal, like not literal, but very close to space cowboy, right? This sort of wandering country music listening, grizzled old storytelling guy, right? Like he's like leading us, literally pulling us on a cord through the beginning of the movie. And by the end of the movie, all that Sandra Bullock has is like the the mud and and like the 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 dirt and the water and the sky. Right. And uh, I think it's sort of it does sort of um, poke. It deals with the kind of hollowness, I suppose, of discursive iconography, although, of course, it's like it's turtles all the way down because, you know, mud and sky are also icons. But there's the sense in which they're somewhat more primordial than the ones that we made in the 70s and 80s. (laughs) 
but I don't know. I don't know. I, I, are they, though? Because, like, I have dug my fingers into mud. Not because I was, like, glad to be on, on land again after crossing the Atlantic or whatever. I saw the for, dotted line, Stokes. You came all the way from Indonesia. It was really impressive. Yeah. Um, but, like, so the image of that is such a great image, and the act of doing it is so awful because it gets under your fingernails and then you have to get <laughs> out. Like, I mean, whenever you have a, a fundamentally tactile thing rendered into visual, that's, that's a pretty um, – Pretty detached iconography, if you ask me. Yeah, they try to make it a pretty visceral moment, a pretty immediate and sensual mo- sensual moment in the sense of it being you know sensory and mm-hmm. stimulative. Um, but yeah, there is a distance. There there remains a distance, but the distance is closed somewhat. Like there, yeah, that's that's sort of a metaphor for the movie. We start out in the upper atmosphere and we end on Earth, right? And it's still not exactly nearby, but it's close. Um, did I tell did I talk at all about the evolution symbolism of her crawling up into the mud. Um. I Maybe. Think so. well, I mean, I thought that was really interesting. The, like the sort of the so her rebirth. So the movie has kind of like a sacred secular. It, it comes up with a rec- not a reconciliation, but it has a, a dialectic of the sacred and secular that's non-exclusive, right? That like praying can sort of be the same as talking on the radio to mission control or talking to a random Chinese guy and his dogs, which was pretty funny. <laughs> Just not like see me. Yeah, exactly. That like that that there isn't really a it, it deproblematizes prayer. Um, by by comparing it to other sorts of acts of talking to people who can't necessarily talk back to you, uh, and then in the in the end, there's a sort of deproblematized baptismal evolution, right? Where she like she like she gets dunked into the water and she sort of goes from the pod. There's like a progression where she goes in from the pod and then she sort of like she sort of is this awkward thing that can't move in the water and then she shirks her suit and suddenly she can swim and she's this elegant swimming creature right and then and she goes past the seaweed which is kind of flowing up around her and you see the plant life in the ocean and she bursts from the surface of the water and breathes right and then she crawls like a mud kipper up onto the onto the um, the shore and then walks on land right it's a progression of life from the origins of life all the way to to humanity yep. right like to the point where she starts on all fours on the earth and then finally struggles to her feet on on it's something out of a kubrick movie it's more it's, it's something out of 2001-ish like kind of stuff right about oh, like very much so absolutely stuff. yeah exactly except it's not as um operatic in the way that it's presented it's but it is very dramatic and intense it's very it's all in super close-up well this is the latter part of it's all in super close-up too for the most part um but it's also like a death and rebirth and it's also a sort of reawakening to the world right it's also sort of a self-forgiveness act where you get the sense that when she comes out of the water she's managed to get past the death of her daughter in some way right like she's been reborn i mean you could assume that based on the way it's filmed i don't know mark what do you think about that yeah, I think so. she, she's reborn uh, into herself, and like, and this goes back to what I was trying to uh, trying to find some way to describe my reaction to this whole like her getting over the death of her daughter yeah. business while in space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like she, she finds a way to live life, you know, not just in mourning in the context of this thing that is lost, but just because her own life itself is valuable and worth saving, right. and, and worth living in and of itself. Right. Right. I mean, that's basically it. It's not. It's not copy. It's not rocket science. Right. <laughs> well, we should talk briefly at least about the scene where she makes that decision because it's a pretty 
wonky scene in certain ways, right? Like it's the scene where we think that George Clooney has survived because he shows up at the space pod and like knocks on the window, right? Yeah. And, and then that he, had me fooled, by the way. Um, yeah, others yeah. might have sort of already picked up that George Clooney actually you know, had died in, yeah. in in the movie, but I was like, oh, he's back. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got the band back together. So, Jordan, to give you an idea, uh, Sandra Bullock has decided to die inside of the Russian spacecraft. Yeah. Yes, and so yeah, it has to be the Russian one because of what happens. And she, so she, she turns off the air, right? She sort of deep starts depressurizing the oxygen in the cabin and decides that she's going to just uh, go to sleep and die in this space capsule. And then she hears a knock on the window, and it's George Clooney in a spacesuit. And he opens the hatch despite her protests, and she manages to survive his brief entry into the thing and closes up. He repressurizes it. Um, that's the first clue that what's happening isn't real. Is that yep. she isn't instantly killed? Um, right. By exposure to the vacuum of space and its temperatures and whatnot. Uh, and then George Clooney talks to her about how he broke the record of the spacewalker, and he finds – he had been talking about how the Russians keep vodka on the Soyuz, and he finds this vodka bottle. And there's this great moment where he, like, takes off the top of the vodka bottle, and the vodka bottle has, like, a space nipple. Right, where it has like it has an attachment on it like a straw, right? But it's like a plastic space nipple, and he like drinks vodka out of the space nipple and kind of looks at her with big eyes and is sort of babyish for a brief moment, right? Like, um, and and then they talk about the value of life and whether or not she should decide to die, right? Like, um, and and he inspires her not to do it. It's pretty cliche the way the actual discussion that they have, but like, there's really not much time for anything else, and there's enough other stuff happening in the movie that I yeah, don't mind it. Um, but it does change her mind, at least enough to wake up and turn the air back on and, and give it a shot. Um, but yeah, Mark, I mean, what did you think so, of that scene? Yeah, than- but, okay, so let's talk about that. Um, yeah. What's going on there, right? Is that – what exactly is that? Is that her own internal agency? Like just her, her, her subconscious having a conversation with itself and, and deciding mm-hmm. that it's time to move on? Or has something really external actually acted upon her, right? I mean the visuals, the language of the movie itself – tends to uh, – makes you think that it is an external thing, right, Uh, coming from outside of herself. But it doesn't really make sense because he's not actually there. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's related to the deproblematization we were talking about – I was talking about before where it's like she's been crying out to somebody who's not there and the person is answering. You know what I mean? Like the person – the crying out saves her, but it's not actually someone answering her. Right, it's like it's it's reinforcing the idea that her crying out to him on the radio, hoping that he was alive, was worth something. I guess. Um, I yeah. mean, it's almost like you. Yeah, you, go ahead. So what you actually see there, right, is there's like you know her memory of what uh, George Clooney was saying to her is finally coming through. Yeah, right? it is not actually George Clooney from beyond. From beyond. No, no, no. That that doesn't seem like that. It's a little bit magical realist, I suppose. But uh, no, it's not actually a ghost. Otherwise, we have. I mean, maybe it's revealed that way in the sequel, which is much. No, yeah, that's what it is. We haven't confronted what it might be, which is space madness. Yeah, space madness. Hey, you can have space madness after you come down from space, right? Like the uh, astronaut who uh, who went crazy and uh, wore diapers to drive out uh, across the country to kill her boyfriend. Oh man! Didn't George, one of George Clooney's stories like sort of creepily echo that story a little bit, where he had to drive a really long distance to get to a girl? Uh, <laughs> yeah, he went to New Orleans, right? Yeah, he, he told a story. George Clooney was telling these stories at the beginning of the movie, and one of the stories is he has to drive to New Orleans to find this girl, right? And he finds her with what's implied to be a she male of some sort, like a sort of 
freak a freak show performance artist who's a biological woman who performs as a man uh, or has a beard due to like hormonal stuff or genetic stuff or whatever. But we never find out what the deal is with this guy, right? It's a guy who's not a guy. Um, but yeah, when he starts describing, and I drove all the way to New Orleans, like, were you wearing a diaper? You know, like, <laughs> anyway. Um, I hate to end on that. So let's get our final impressions of Gravity. I mean, I think we've pretty much detected what the movie's about, kind of what makes it different from movies that are more heroic than it, what tools it employs to do what it does, that it's really scary, but also it's really uh, powerful and emotionally moving. I mean, Mark, did you have any other final impressions of the movie? To yeah, make? we didn't talk a whole lot about the visual beauty of it, which is one yeah. of the major accomplishments of it. Uh, it just looked fan. Fantastic, right? It was awe-inspiring in every sense of the word, and, and you know, again, it excited that like ten-year-old boy in me who really wanted to be an astronaut someday. And like that is just it. It, it was like this: the height of artistic accomplishment was there in the stars. That's what it, it, it said to me, and I really enjoyed yeah. that. Enjoyed the crap out of it. Jordan, do you have any final impressions based on this movie that you didn't see but have gotten to talk about with us for an hour? Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's interesting because it seems like it's great and I'm looking forward to seeing it now. But it, it, there is a real genre of movies where the way to get over some kind of deep personal trauma is to go through some kind of hyperkinetic action sequence, mm-hmm. um, which like, I, I don't generally like those movies. I feel like to tell people who are hurting that the way to... Uh, uh, to deal with this is to go up in space and have George Clooney die for you is uh, is sort of the wrong way to conceive of pain. But I don't know. I mean, uh, wrong way. I, I find it a, a kind of facile uh, overarching plot. But yeah. when done well, it can be great. And it sounds like this one is done really well. Yeah. I mean, I think that that really backs up why I didn't want to watch this movie in the first place, which is like, why do you subject yourself to unpleasantness? Right? <laughs> like, why do, you, why do you want to make things painful or bad for yourself? Why do you want to, if you're already stressed out, know your limits, right? Like, people do need to heal. And yeah, the answer to trauma is not more trauma. It's not like it's not like a it's not like it's not like a dislocated knee where you can just trauma the knee back into location, right? Like, well, that's uh, also there, to a certain degree, it's trivializing like the death of her daughter, right? It's like you thought that was a problem. No, space is a problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, gosh, it's going to be so hard to let go of George Clooney. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, at least it wasn't something even sillier like sharks, and I'm really <laughs> glad that, that there wasn't sharks at the end of the movie. That would have been ridiculous. Oh man. So yeah, I mean, I guess the only final the only final thoughts that I add all to this is just it's it's been a while since we've had a movie from Quaron. I think he worked on this for four years, and this is the Children of Men guy, and uh, just. He does a similar thing in that movie. You know, Children of Men is very similar in the way that it takes uh, tools that are used in action movies and employs them in a movie that uh, really – it feels more European, honestly. Like it feels more, feels more European than your standard Hollywood action movie in that it is like hyper-concerned with existential issues and has like moments of angst and dread that are not immediately resolved, right? And that it like it has it, – it tries to address – horror with poetry and not with blade like not with wesley snipes with a machine gun you know what i mean um so i like that 
Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, but if you have felt the pull of gravity yourself and have seen this wonderful movie and want to talk about it with us, uh, you can come on the site and you can discuss it with us in the forum comments uh, or in the comments threads for this very episode. We love it if, you've, uh, if you're a new listener drawn in by the gravity of this podcast that you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a five-star review or a four-star. Leave us as many stars as you would like. Uh, on iTunes, uh, it just—it's been a while. I think a lot of our regular listeners who were going to review us reviewed us a long time ago, and so it would be nice to get some fresh ones up there, just so that we can get an accurate idea of how well or poorly we are doing. Because um, that's what it is, really—it's a feedback tool. Um, but yes, to do all these things and more, uh, to see all sorts of wonderful video, text, audio content, please come and visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. I think we need to. Um, I was really inspired by this movie about um, oh, yeah. you know, some certain songs. Oh yeah, I think there are certain songs that came to mind when we were thinking yeah, about, about gravity in particular. Yeah, about that particular force of gravity. And uh, what do you do when, when faced with gravity, Pete? Uh, do I have to look up the lyrics? I think you. I think you learn to fly. Is what I think you. I think you defy. You and I defying gravity. Yeah, Jordan, open the airlock. It's Harvey. <laughs> I want it to be on the record that I had no part in this. <laughs> Gravity, and you won't bring me down.